Ruth 4. Let me pray, um, and then we will kick off the end of this study. Uh, God, just as just as Dane prayed, I just want to um, second that that uh, as we as we as we prayed before the service that that you would lift this time up that our worship would continue now um, through the study of your word that we would have our eyes set on you not even the characters in the story um, though true um, and significant um, that that they would be simply indicators or pointers and foreshadowing of the greater work that you are doing Jesus so um, Holy Spirit I ask for uh, the ability to teach now um, ask to give us all open hearts to learn from you tonight, even myself, and, um, and just see your, your name high and lifted up um, in our lives now, though we're studying an Old Testament book, and a lot of times it's tough to connect how that touches us now in 2016, but I pray that, that Holy Spirit, you would do that ministry in the heart of your people for your glory, not for mine, not for this church's, um, but for the name of Jesus alone. And so, Jesus, we love you. Um, I can't wait to see you again. Um, until then, we'll sing your praises. In your name we pray. Amen. So Ruth 4 is where we're going to be. We're going to wrap up our short study in Ruth. And I actually wanted to take a look at two things that Jesus said. Jesus said in John five thirty nine, he says, You search the scriptures, for in them you think they have eternal life. You search through the scriptures, and he was speaking to religious folks and disciples and crowds and gatherings. You search the scriptures, for in them you think it's not bad to search the scriptures. But what he says is you search the scriptures thinking that that's what will bring you life. And then he says, and these are they which testify of me. He says, you're digging through the Bible. And when he taught this, he only had the Old Testament, by the way. Jesus only taught in the Old Testament. And he said, you search through the scriptures because you think in them is where you will find life. And he says, but what you need to understand is that those things in the scriptures were simply talking about me. Which is revolutionary. Even in the American church, we don't, you don't hear that consistently across the board. Zach and I pound it like crazy. Some of you are like, I'm tired of it. I've heard it every Sunday for three years, right? But the whole Bible, one story, one redemptive love story from creation all the way to consummation, from Genesis all the way to Revelation, the full counsel of God's word, one story, one hero, one point, one champion. Jesus says, those things testify of me. Some of you are like, well, you can't base a whole theology off one little quote. And so in Luke 24, verse 27, Jesus, having resurrected, okay, this was one of the two Bible studies that were recorded that he led and this is how he began his, this is how he conducted his Bible study. It says, again, Luke twenty four twenty seven. It says, and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, right? That's the, that's the old way of saying, he just did the whole Old Testament, okay? Some of you are like, man, Mark's teaching, man, we got to be here an hour. Jesus did the whole Old Testament, okay? So relax, I'm taking it easy on you, just doing an hour. Jesus would sit down, best Bible study. By the way, he's the best Bible teacher that has ever lived, Okay? And he went to the beginning, it says, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures. I'm so glad it doesn't say in the scriptures, all the things. It says in all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. So Jesus resurrects from the dead, decides to have a couple really awesome Bible studies. And what he does in his Bible studies is show them that the Old Testament is about him. 
That's how he spends his Bible study time after the resurrection in the short time before he ascends back to heaven. He shows them that the entirety of the Old Testament is about them. And I hope that in this short book of Ruth, that in our study through one through three, already you've seen, as I challenged us to see in the very first week, that I wasn't going to wait. We weren't going to wait for Boaz to make a connector to Jesus. We weren't. And we didn't, did we? Those of you that have been here, and if you haven't been, you can go back on our website and take a look at, again, it's just going to be four videos. You can see that even in chapter one, we see the story kicks off and this family leaves Bethlehem because there was a famine. A father, mother, they leave to a, a pagan land. Father dies. Sons take the wives of pagan women, which is, diso- is, is a disobedient act. God commanded them not to intermarry at that time because he was, he was keeping Israel set apart. So they marry two women. Then the sons die. So now you've got mother-in-law and you've got two daughters. God starts working in and among his people back in Bethlehem. It says that he came to them and he brought them bread. He, he blessed them and brought them bread. Mom says, it's time for me to go back home. I want to be back in the covenant community with God's people. I want to go back to Bethlehem. And she says to her daughter-in-laws, go home. Go home. And they wept because she was apparently a really great mother. They wept. She said, go home. And then she, they said, no, we're going to stay with you. And then she laid out like a really good case. You should go home. You've got your husbands. You've got your families. You've got your, your, your religion. You've got kids ahead of you. If you go home, go home, go home. And one of them was like, that's a pretty good, I'm out. And one left. I get it. It's a good case. But Ruth, it says, clung to her. Clung to her. She had a taste now of God's people. She had a taste of faith in a living king. And so she said, I'll go with you. And then mother-in-law like went silent, right? For the first time in human history. Okay. And so like, sorry, bad joke. Right. And so, um, right. Just came off vacation with my mother-in-law. I love her. Okay. Um, And so she heads back, silent, awkward, traveling home. But Ruth says, I'm staying with you. And they go back, but it says that, that God came to his people and he gave him bread. And we saw right away in chapter one, and I won't reiterate the whole series, but right away in chapter one, we see that Jesus then came from heaven, the only religious leader in history to ever say he's from heaven. Every other religious leader has an earthly mother. He says, no, I came from heaven and to heaven I'll return. And so he came and he said, I'm now the bread of life. This is how God gives you the ultimate bread that will satisfy you for eternity. So we saw right away in chapter one, Boaz wasn't even on the scene yet. We see that while Jesus is likely teaching his disciples, see, look, you ain't got to wait for Boaz. We'll get to Boaz. But Jesus showed him in all the scriptures, every chapter, the whole thing has been telling a microcosmic story of a macro love story that's been going on. And that's what Ruth is. It's a love story. It's a narrative. It's a literary piece. As Zach said last week, completely historical, but don't read it as a history book. And this is one of the literary books. There's poetry and there's law and there's history and there's lineage and genealogy and all that sort of stuff in the Bible. And so all these different types of writing are mixed together and this is a narrative. It's true, right? It's true, but it's a love story. But what it is, is it's, it's a small fraction. It's a picture that simply points you to a greater love story. It just simply wets your palate a little bit. It's an appetizer for the bigger one. And I love the song that Dane picked out, that your love is greater. We're seeing an awesome love here, but there's a greater love. There's a greater kinsman redeemer. There's a greater restorer. There's a greater finale than what we're going to see tonight in the finale 
of Ruth. And then we went into chapter two, we went into chapter three, and we just see that this love story evolves and she goes home with her mother-in-law and she begins to go out to provide for herself and her mother-in-law. She goes to a field and, and she humbly asks if she can take the grain, even though that that was a legal right of her as, as kind of a poor, you know, widowed wife. She, she could go out and grab grain. It was, it was part of the law back then that the farmers would literally cut the corners and leave the corners so that the poor could come through and eat. And she went in there and she worked hard and it says that they, the workers in this field had, had observed her and that they had this master, Boaz, a striking dude, best looking guy on the block, hands down for sure, okay? Um, just, he was everything you would want, ladies, better than Ryan Gosling, by whoever the deal is, better than any vampire you guys like nowadays, I don't know, right? And he's this amazing character. And the cool thing was is that when he stepped on the scene, he had love for his workers and they had love for him. He wasn't this domineering employer. He was an amazing man of God who had an amazing love. And he was, he was taken by Ruth's work ethic, to be honest, up front before anything romantic. And then he said, stay here. And we saw that in the field, of, in, in, when you stay with God's people, you get comfort, you get refreshment, you get companionship. And so we see this whole redemptive story playing out. It's the story of the whole Bible, but it's in four chapters. And so then we see that she's at the dinner table and he has that awkward flirt moment where he's like, yo, dip your bread in my vinegar, right? Like guys don't do that much anymore, right? I'm gonna try it with my wife next week. I'll let you know how it goes. Like, hey, honey, dip your bread in this. <laughs> That's a good vinegar, right? And so we start to see that then romance is, is coming through. And then, and then Zach took you through last week in three that we see that she went to the threshing floor. She found rest in him. And, and, and Zach, of course, painted how, how chapter three pointed to Jesus too. And now we're gonna get to chapter four. And speaking of Zach, I was at his wedding on Friday, and I love this. I just have this as a super random note. For those of you that weren't there, I was talking about it with a couple people. Zach, I'm not here to glorify Zach by any means. He'd probably be embarrassed, but I think, is he out of the country yet? He's far away. He's not checked in. He texted me yesterday. I'm like, bro, you should not be even outside right now. <laughs> okay, right? Um, and so I think they're gone, so it doesn't matter. Some of you caught that. Move on. And so, um, and, and, and so Zach, with his vows, he, he did almost the unvow. He almost did the exact opposite of a vow, where a vow is not like, I promise, I will, I'm going to, I will, I will, I, I'll do, I'll be, I'll this, that. Everything Zach said was that everything that he wouldn't be. I, I won't, I can't, I, I'm not big enough, I'm not good enough, I'm, I don't have it in me. And, and all through the whole thing, he's saying, I, I'm not that good, I'm not that great, but I'll point you to who is. And then he said, Megan, I am not your dream man. Jesus is. Or he says, I am not the man of your dreams, Jesus is. That's what Zach declared on Friday as part of his vows. I'm not the man of your dreams, Jesus is. And he says, and I will stumble through life with you, running toward him by your side until death do us part. It was the unvow, it was the anti-vow, it was amazing. I'm like, I can't believe he did so much better than me. I can <laughs> I don't even want to look back at my vows now. <laughs> but, but, but the heart of Zach, the heart of scripture is that it's not about us. That it has always and will always be for those who are in the covenant community about Jesus. About Jesus. That's how we see things. We see work through the lens of Christ. We see ministry. We see family. We see marriage. We see friendship. We see restoration. We see crime. We see sin. We see all of that through a lens of the gospel now. And so in this finale, there's going to be a lot of that. This, this story has been building. 
And now we're in, we're in full romance. And if you remember, or if you looked at it, um, I, don't, I don't know or remember if Zach focused on this, but if you actually look at chapter three, it leaves you in kind of an awkward spot. Because you know they're in love, but then Boaz said that there was someone closer. So what, back in ancient times, when, when a woman's husband died, there was law that protected her. Because if you were an unmarried woman back there, it was near death. It was almost surely death. You were outcast. You were poor. In that ancient culture, it, it, was, it was a horrible position to be in. So there was laws within God's community that said, you will then, there will be a brother. There will be the closest relative will take will take over that, that wife, will take over child-rearing, will take over property even, in order to keep these in the, in, in the family of God, to keep this within Israel, and to move forward. And so she was in a desperate situation with her mother-in-law, now both widows. But chapter three sort of left us where Boaz, they're like, they're in love, this is going great. Like, I can hear wedding bells. And then Boaz says, there's actually a guy that's closer to you. And, and it just, all of a sudden, you're like, what's going to happen? And we see that at chapter four starts off. It says, now Boaz went up to the gate and sat down there. And behold, a close relative of whom Boaz had spoken came by. So the man closer with priority, I should say, in being the kinsman, in being the kinsman redeemer, the one with priority, comes by. Now, this isn't just like a weird gate. Like we think of gates as just desolate. This is actually where court proceedings took place. This is actually where the elders sat. This is actually where public hearings took place. This was a place that you could seal legal deals. You could seal legality in front of the elders and witnesses. And the elders were theirs, we're going to see. So this wasn't just like a random gate where they're off in the weird part of the city, just sitting, talking randomly. This is essentially going to like the Civic Arts Plaza. If you think about that on T.O., she's like, we're going to the main part, like sort of the, the general entrance to the city. And so he says, he went to the gate and this close relative whom Boaz had spoken came by. So Boaz said, come aside, friend, sit down here. So he came aside and sat down. And he took 10 men of the elders of the city and said, sit down here. So he assembles. He assembles the city council, if you will. So they sat down. Then he said to the close relative, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, sold the piece of land which belonged to our brother Elimelech. Naomi sold the piece of land. Okay, I've got a couple notes here. I just want to kind of read them because I want to get them right. Leviticus 25, 8 through 17, it's, we see that when Israel came into the promised land during the time of Joshua, okay, the land was divided among the tribes and then among the family groups. God intended, and this is taken from David Guzik, God intended that the land stay within those tribes and family groups or clans so that the land would never be permanently sold. And every 50 years, you can see in Leviticus 25, every 50 years, it had to be returned to the original family group. This is a big deal. We don't get that. We should get this in California because a piece of land is like $8 million. Okay. We should get the value of land, okay? But back then, it was virtually everything. For, for you to be established, for you to, to have a place in society, an honorable place in society, land was huge. It was a huge grab to have, was land. And then he notes 50 years is a long time, so God made provision for the land that was sold that it could be redeemed back to the family by a kinsman redeemer. 
So even within that 50 years, there could be this negotiation that says, look, a tragedy has happened. You're next in line. And it could be redeemed back through these circumstances. God had set up these protective measures for land because, again, land was so vital to survival back then. So vital. That was the purpose that God even goes through verses and verses and chapters and creates law around this because he's protecting his people. And so kinsman redeemer had the responsibility. Now, now take note of this. Three main responsibilities in this. So he sits down with the elders. He's at the gate. He's got three things on his mind, but I got to be honest. I got to show you how Boaz is, a, a, is, is not a con artist, but he's pretty smart. He's pretty smart in how he goes about this because he's essentially about to give away the responsibility. He's going to say, you have priority. It's yours. Go. And you've got to imagine that Naomi and Ruth are here. The Bible doesn't say it, but this is, this is a small town meeting. I imagine that Naomi and Ruth are there as well. He's got elders. He's got witnesses, as he's going to describe. He, the kinsman redeemer has the responsibility for three things. Remember this. Property, persons, and posterity. And by posterity, I mean future generation. I mean descendants. This is their responsibility. So it's not just like, oh, hey, brother died, get a new wife. It's, it's I have to take care of the, the new, my new wife now. I have to take care of property and holdings and businesses. Was it an agricultural plot of land? Was it used for other types of tools and trades? But also future generations because God was moving Israel through history and a name was a very big thing to carry on. And so the kinsman redeemer was responsible for property person and posterity of the descendants of the family. And so he says, Naomi sold the piece of land. This is where he's going. Now what he's doing, he says the piece of land, he, he's, he's beginning this conversation. And this, this is kind of like the nerdy part of the chapter, but he begins this as, as a property matter. He does it very smart because property is, is a grab. Like this is a no brainer, as you'll see. He's saying, look, this is a property matter. Sold the plot, the piece of land. So he first brings it up as a matter of property, which is, again, the responsibility of this new kinsman. And the man he's speaking with in front of the elders is the one who has priority for Ruth and property and her descendants. Property would be something that any man was interested back then. Anyone would be happy to buy back this sort of property to get a chance through a tragedy to get a chance to have basically an inheritance. It's like, look, you're, you were first son in the will. It says first child gets it, right? It's like, yes, what do I need to do? And that's what you're going to see happen. So he says, then he said to the close relative, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, sold the piece of land which belonged to our brother Elimelech. And I thought to inform you, I love Boaz. I could just, this guy's sitting cross-legged at this time. Like just, hey, I just thought to inform you, right? Saying, Buy it back in the presence of the inhabitants and the elders of my people. He says, do you want the land? If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not redeem it, then tell me that I might know for there is no one but you to redeem it and I am next after you. And then the descendant said, I'm in, right? He said, I'll redeem it. We're talking property? You better believe it. Bethlehem, property? Are you kidding me? An inheritance? Yes. But Boaz is doing something here. Boaz is very shrewd. He's doing something very purposed. So he says, I'm in, I'll redeem it. Now imagine Naomi and, and Ruth, if, if they're are crushed when they hear this. The man of her dreams is saying, she's yours. Well, saying they know that she's attached to it, but you'll see what Boaz does. 
So Ruth just hears the man of her dreams, her love, the man she wants to marry, say, it's yours. It's priority. Do you want it? He's like, yes, I want it. But watch what Boaz does. Then Boaz said, on the day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, now he's going to get into persons. He covered his property. Now he's going to move into persons and posterity. He's already got him amped up on his decision on the moment. He says, look, everyone's here. Let's seal the deal. You want the property? I want the property. Okay, so when you take it from the hand of Naomi, you must also buy it from Ruth, the Moabitess, the wife of the dead, to, per- to perpetrate, to perpetuate, perpetrate, perpetuate the name of the dead through his inheritance. This is suddenly a much bigger deal. So you want the land? Yeah, okay. Then the mother-in-law and the daughter come with it. Oh, oh. And look what he says. And the close relative said, I cannot redeem it for myself. He's out. I can't redeem it for myself. I take it back. Scratch the record, right? Typewriter, back. Okay. I cannot redeem it for myself. I love this. Lest I ruin my own inheritance. Now, it's very likely this man already had sons. What he means is that he likely already had sons, which was the inheritance was already divvied up. Now, if he takes on Naomi, that's one thing. She's older. She's not of childbearing years anymore. Okay, so it's like, okay, I'll take mother-in-law and Ruth. You can see how Boaz did this. And Ruth, then he looks over at Ruth. Uh, She is of childbearing age and she's young. Therefore, my inheritance, which is already divvied up, now I'm responsible to bring her in and have kids, which means, guess what? This gets divvied up a whole bunch more times. And he's like, it would ruin my inheritance. Now he's out. See what Boaz did? He went with property first because he knew that's an easy one. And then he brought in the people and he brought in the posterity. And it's suddenly a larger deal than the closest relative thought he was getting into. And the close relative said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I ruin my own inheritance. You redeem my right, is where he turns it over. You redeem my right of redemption for yourself, for I cannot redeem it. And, and Ruth must be elated at this point. He did it. What a weird plan, but it worked. Right? Like, how are you going to marry her? I'm going to tell another guy to do it. <laughs> Interesting. Let's see how this goes. Property? Yay! Mother-in-law? Ah! And Ruth? No. Why? Not because Ruth was, all, she was by all accounts beautiful. It wasn't that. It wasn't him being a jerk. It was him being a jerk because he's like, oh, my pot's already split. I don't want more kids than this. They're getting their grubby hands on my money. Ruin it. So he says, I'm out. He wanted the property, but not the people and not the posterity. And says this, now this, this is the funny part. Now this was the custom in former times. I think we should just, in the church, we should just do some of this stuff for fun. It says, now was the custom in former times in Israel concerning redeeming and exchange to confirm anything. One man took off his sandal. I should have wore sandals tonight. And gave it to the other. And this was confirmation in Israel. Now what he doesn't say, I think I looked, I did look it up. It's in here. Hold on. Deuteronomy 25, 5 through 10, if you want to look it up. When a, kinsman, when a kinsman declined right and responsibility, there was a ceremony performed. And in Deuteronomy 25, 5, 10, there was two parts. The declining kinsman would remove a sandal, and the woman being declined would spit in his face. Some of you think the Bible's boring. I don't know which one you're reading. Now the women are like, maybe we should bring this stuff back. How many fights would be solved a lot quicker if that was the outcome? Right? But there was no lack of honor in this case, and so she didn't spit. Okay? Ruth was like, yay! He's like, don't worry, I ain't going to spit you. <laughs> and she gets Boaz. She's like, don't worry about the whole spit thing. He takes off his sandal. She's like, we're good. We're fine. Don't worry about it. I'm with, I'm with Gosling over here. Okay? 
And so there was no dishonor, and so there was no spit. He gave a sandal, or he took off a sandal, gave it to the other. This was the confirmation in Israel. Therefore, the close relative said to Boaz, buy it for yourself. So he took off a sandal, his sandal. Then Boaz said to the elders, this is where he's going to seal the deal legally. He said to the elders that, and all the people, you are witnesses this day that I have bought all that was Elimelech's and all that was Chilion and Malon's, which were the sons from the hand of Naomi. Moreover, Ruth the Moabitess, the widow of Malon, I have acquired as my wife to perpetuate the name of the dead through its inheritance, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among this brethren and from his position at the gate. You are witnesses this day. And all the people who were at the gate and the elders said, we are witnesses. The Lord makes the woman who is coming to your house like Rachel and Leah, the two who built the house of Israel. And may you prosper in that city, which I'm not gonna pronounce, and be, F, and so, and be famous in Bethlehem. If you have a pen, I want you to put a number one by Bethlehem. And be famous in Bethlehem. This is where they were going to live. May your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah because of the offspring. I want you to put an underline Bethlehem, number one, offspring, number two. Bore to Judah because of the offspring which the Lord will give you from this young woman. 13, so Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife. And when he went into her, if you have questions about that, ask me after, we don't have time. Went into her, the Lord gave her conception and she bore a son. I want you to underline the Lord gave her conception. Put a number three by it. And the women said to Naomi, blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a close relative and may his name be famous in Israel and may he be to you a restorer of life. Underline restorer of life. Put a number four. So I'm like, I see what you're doing. (laughs) And a nourisher of your old age for your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is better to you than seven sons has borne him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her bosom and became a nurse to him. Also the neighbor women gave him a name saying, there is a son born to Naomi and they called his name Obed. He is the father of Jesse, the father of David. Now this is the genealogy of Perez. Perez begot Hezron. Hezron begot Ram. I'm gonna name my next kid Ram. And Ram begot Amadimadad who was no doubt a rapper, Ammon and Nadab begot Nashon, and Nashon begot Salmon. Salmon begot Boaz, and Boaz begot Obed. Obed begot Jesse, and Jesse begot David. Underline David, put number five. God has always been telling one story. From creation to consummation, this has been one story. And underneath that story are people, our titles, our institutions, our laws, our prophecies, our stories that are all 
pointing up to a grander story. That's what he's been doing through Ruth the whole time. You have to follow the redemptive story that God began to work in his people and Ruth, this pagan, this outsider, and pagan or, or uh, um, was basically anyone who wasn't Jewish, which is certainly me, and I, I imagine 99%, save Carly as we learned a couple weeks ago, and probably 99% of us are considered Gentiles, non-Jews. And we've seen as God has been bringing her underneath his wing, even in the Old Testament, while orchestrating the people of Israel, still reaching out to people outside of Israel. Isn't that amazing? Still bringing those who have a taste of his covenant community and want in by faith. They want in by faith. He still brings them under his wing and brings them nourishment and brings them refreshment, brings them companionship and protection and rest and love and grace and mercy. And so this is the redemptive story. And then Boaz comes in as this figure who then seeks out, in in a kind of a weird way, I'll give you that one, kind of a weird way, but he seeks out his bride. He pursues his bride. Some Some of you think that Christianity is about you making mistakes and getting back to God. This is about us running away from God, falling on our face, turning around in repentance. Repentance just means turning around, turning around and realizing that God's been on your heels the whole time. He doesn't sit in a far off throne and say, get back to me by good works. He doesn't say, you've run, now run back. Which is what every single religion, give me any single religion, I've studied almost every single one of them, and they all, at some point, must resort to good works and moralism. They must. People say all religions teach the same thing. It's because they haven't read the Bible. They haven't. They took a a comparative religion class at their local college and think they know. But what we see is a God that pursues people. We saw it right away in the garden. When Adam and Eve fell, what happened? Did God say, come here? What did he say? No, he came down into the garden. He said, where are you? And God knew where they were, but he was pursuing them. You got to get out of your mind that you've got to get to God. You need to get into your head that God has come to you. That God from the garden has been pursuing his people. In Ruth, we see that he came to Bethlehem. He came to Israel. He gave them bread. They didn't earn it. It was famine. If anything, they didn't deserve anything from him. And he pursued them. You see in books like Hosea, where God commands a prophet to marry a prostitute, a known prostitute, knowing the pain that would bring the prophet. Years ago, I taught through the whole book of Hosea. Amazing love story. Amazing love story. Hollywood can't come close to this. That God would say, a religious leader, marry a known prostitute. And then when she runs and she flees and she goes back to her old ways, what did the God command him to do? Go after her. What was he doing? He was showing you in a mini story, the major story, that a religious man, that, that a godly man would pursue the ungodly. That a God would come after people. For God so loved that he gave his only son. Jesus came on pursuit, on a cosmic rescue mission. 
See, we don't view sin, we view it in levels, but it's cosmic treason. And we don't see that, that Jesus came, not for fun. He said he came to do the will of the Father. Why, did, why? Because God said, go after them. Jesus wasn't stoked on the cross. By the way, God knew the cross would happen before man even invented it. He told Jesus, he says, go after them. Foreshadowed by Hosea. Go get your bride. Foreshadowed by Boaz. Jesus is the greater Hosea. Jesus is the greater Boaz. Jesus is the greater David. This whole thing has been about God pursuing his people. And in this, he shows and he weaves through all the scriptures, narratives and institutions and laws and titles and people and stories. This amazing story that's being told. That's why we go to movies. I love movies. I've been, before kids, I was obsessed with movies. My wife and I, we kept MovieCo in business. Like, we should have bought stock in that place. We averaged two movies a weekend. Averaged. We've gone to like two movies in the last like eight years now. It's a little different. But we love movies. Why do we love it? We love that escapism. We love to watch as something's being orchestrated, assuming that it has a good outcome. And yet we're in the greatest love story. Right now, 2016, we're in the story. Some of you want that, and I'm here to tell you that it can be yours. It can be ours in a covenant community, a God that comes to you and rescues you and says, I will be your kinsman redeemer. I will pursue you. I will find you. I will go after you until you see me again. That's the heart of Jesus. It's been this constant pursuit. And I had you underline these five things because I want to show you that even in the end, even after we get over Boaz, kinsman redeemer, got it. And we just kind of toss the rest. No, even to the very, literally the very last word, he's telling the story. And so it says this, it says that the two who built your house, this is in verse 11, may you prosper in that place and be famous in Bethlehem. That this son would be born in Bethlehem. Ever heard that before? That this son would be born in Bethlehem. A know-nothing town. Nothing. Not known for anything. Poor, small, like Lancaster. No one cares. Anyone from Lancaster? Sorry. Sorry. I love you, Shane. No one better to offend than you. (laughs) Just that, I'm from the Midwest. Just, you know, Oshkosh, Wisconsin. That place doesn't exist. No, it does. Right? That's Bethlehem. People are like, Bethlehem. Silly. No royalty comes from Bethlehem. Exactly, but servants do. And so in Bethlehem, he's telling a story. God's using and orchestrating his people a grander narrative through a micro-narrative. It says in verse 12, May your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah, because of you the offspring. Now this is interesting, because it doesn't just say son. Offspring is actually a, a, a quite technical term used in the Bible. 
It's actually a quite technical term. I'm going to again go to my notes. I want to get this right. It says the son is referred to the offspring in the midst of comparison to Judah. The word offspring is a technical term used to identify someone who will have a special role in God's plan of salvation. It is first used in Eve's offspring who will crush the head of the serpent in Genesis 3.15. Later, this word is used in reference to the offspring of Abraham who will inherit the land, Genesis 17.7-8, and the offspring of David who will sit on the throne forever in 2 Samuel 7.12. Each of these promises are fulfilled filled in one person, Jesus. Revelation 13, 3, Galatians 3, 15 through 16, Luke 1, 32 through 33. That the term even offspring would be used is God showing you that he's the greatest author of all time. The author and the finish of your faith had the foresight to say, don't put son, use offspring. Verse 13 says, so Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife. And when he went into her, the Lord gave her conception and she bore a son. The son was conceived through a unique demonstration of God's power, only to foreshadow an even greater use of God's power when he conceived his only son through a virgin. And by the way, the connection to that is because the the bloodline would be traced through the father. And so without an earthly father, only a virgin mother, Jesus' bloodline ran straight to heaven. he was not tainted with the blood that had come down through Adam who started the whole thing. God jumped over that and said, this blood which will be poured out for all sins will be clean and pure and so he won't have an earthly father. He will have a stepdad which is an amazing encouragement for those of you that have stepdads. It's an amazing encouragement for you, those of you that will be stepdads. But Jesus comes then through a miraculous use of God's power And we see a foreshadowing of that, that Jesus would be conceived in an even greater act of God's power. Verse 15, it says, And may he be to you a restorer of life for Naomi and a nourisher of your old age for your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is better than seven sons, has borne him. Foreshadowing that this delightful renewal Naomi was going to experience through this son would be but a foreshadowing of a greater, the greatest, the finale where Jesus then comes as the ultimate restorer, not just of a mother-in-law from a broken family, but to all who would then be in him. That's why the New Testament uses in Christ hundreds of times. It only says Christian twice because it refers to him as being in Christ, in Christ, not a title you hold. This is something you're in, and when you're in him, he restores you. And that means to simply mend back to perfection. Now, will we ever be perfect on earth? No, but are we headed that way? You better believe it. You better believe it. Though our bodies begin to fail, we're actually being restored back to perfection. And so this restorer of life is but a foreshadowing of the one who would come and ultimately restore all those who are found in him. And at the very end, it says, Salmon begot Boaz and Boaz begot Obed. Obed begot Jesse and Jesse begot David. So what we see is that Boaz and Ruth are the great-grandparents of David. And we know that David is now going to be part of the lineage 
from which Jesus comes. Had to happen that way. Had to. I don't know if you've seen those maps. Have you ever seen the genealogy of Jesus mapped out? It's amazing and insane and confusing and totally like, I I get so relieved when I see it. I'm like, I'm so glad God was in charge of this because I'm lost. Adam, and then I just like fall off. I'm like, I don't get it. And he shows you how all of this, and as he protected Israel, this is why he did it. It's why he set up boundaries. It's why he set up laws. This is why he gave. This is why he took away. It's so that he could move this nation. And that even when people are dying, some were protected and then some were brought in. And then they were redeemed and brought in via Boaz. And then ultimately that lineage came all the way back down to Jesus. God's always been writing one story. Zach said it last week. You cannot tell us that the Bible's not about Jesus. You can't. There are, there are American churches that bring in Jewish rabbis to teach the Old Testament because they say that they are the ones that get it. I disagree. I disagree. Jesus disagrees on no less than two accounts where he says, all of this was testifying to me. Can you imagine that? Maybe possibly in his Bible study, the same thing. He's like, and guess who, guess who David's great-grandparents were? Right? He's like, the Holy Spirit had this on lock a long time ago when he wrote it. And so we see that Jesus is now going to be the greater Boaz. We see that Jesus is now going to be the greater son from Bethlehem who would restore. But we also see that Jesus is now coming in the lineage and will be the greater David. And I've got this at the end. It's very simple. It says, Jesse begot David. Because in their day, what this meant was that the Messiah was coming. Jesus was coming. And Ruth was written as a foreshadowing, a precursor, a preview that God was making good on his promise that took place all the way back in Genesis 3 when he said, I will send a solution. First thing God did when they sinned, came down, what did he do? He preached the gospel to them. They didn't know the name Jesus, but he said, I'm gonna send you a solution. Who do you think that solution was? God immediately came into the garden in the midst of sin. He didn't say, I want you to sit on that for a day. Think about what you've done and come out of your room later. He comes right into the scene, says, where are you? He collects them, and he says, don't worry, I'm going to send a solution. And immediately he sparks off a story that's been greater than anyone that's ever walked this planet, apart from one. In their day, the Messiah was coming. Jesus was coming. And the amazing thing is that in 2016, today, I can say that Jesus is coming. Jesus was coming. He came. I'm here to tell you, he is coming. Some of you think that this entire thing is done with and complete and over. You've forgotten something. You've forgotten that this is not over yet. We've relinquished on the battlefield as Christians because we think it's all done. We don't have a game plan. Jesus sealed it. He said it. He said it's finished. Why are you so excited about us doing stuff? Well, I, I mean, really, honestly, we're just waiting for him to come back, right? Oh, he's coming back, isn't he? But what makes you think that a God that's writing a story through the use of Israel and how the people and the institutions and the movements and the blessing and the struggle and the hard times and the good times, as he was so sovereign to use Israel to move through history to point to Jesus coming, how on earth do we not believe that he is not currently and actively moving the Christian church through history to point to Jesus coming? Some of you may be on the team, but my question is, are you on the field? 
Some of you are bench warmers in your faith. Some of you are new, and I understand that. Some of you are so deep, and you've, you've just simply been coming to church. You've accepted Jesus, and you're just sitting here waiting. Because I, I would venture to say that you believe this is done. And we're just simply passively waiting now. That God isn't presenting circumstances in your workplace. He isn't presenting friends and family encounters to, to guide and steer the Christian community through modern history, including today, to point as a foreshadowing that Jesus is coming. And some of you are like, oh, I'm not in the Bible. Me neither. My name's in there, but it wasn't me they were talking about. <clears throat> but there is a very big gap between the last book and Revelation. And it's the chapter that we understand the least in God's story. And that's the one that's active and going on right now. And Paul tells us that we've now been given a ministry of reconciliation. That just as Jesus came and reconciled and is reconciling all things to himself, Paul declares that we've now been given a ministry of reconciliation. You want to know what the game plan is? The game plan is to be reconciling all things to Jesus now as a foreshadowing that he's coming. Jesus is coming. It is an amazing appearance. I've read Revelation. Some of you are afraid of Revelation. He comes back with a bang. That was not a fight. That was a sacrifice. He'll never take a punch again. He comes in on a horse. I go through this with my boys. He comes in on a white robe. That white robe's been dipped in blood. He has a sword in his mouth. He has fire in his eyes. He has crowns on his head. He leads the army. He's a general, but he's not in the back. And he leads the army and he comes down and then Jerusalem comes to earth and it touches earth. Jesus goes back to the mount that he ascended from and he cracks it in half and splits it. He says, I'm here to stay this time. Do you know that? He literally comes down and breaks a mountain in half. Could you imagine if we could do that in modern military times? We should show him real quick in Afghanistan. Go break that mountain. He created the mountains. He can destroy the mountains. He comes back and it's, and it's amazing but don't lose sight, especially from a guy from me that gets really excited about Revelation. Don't forget that this has been one massive love story. That God's gospel is a good news. Why? Not because Jesus is violent. Though he deals with his enemies harshly after giving them plenty of time to repent. But this has been the greatest love story ever told. Jesus was coming in the days of Ruth. Jesus is coming in the days of you. He is coming. He's pursuing you now, individually, and he will pursue and lead his entire people in the end, into an eternity where we are restored forever. We have perfect bodies as Jesus has a perfect body. And I'll go back to what Zach said. No man on this earth, no man on this earth is the man of your dreams. Jesus is. Amen? All right, let's pray. God, just as we go into this time of worship, I pray that that would just be clear on our hearts, that we would be, man, I would be excited about that. I came in pretty tired, but I'm excited. I'm excited that this is not a, a violent ending, that this is not a war flick, that this is a love story, that you're a God that has always pursued people. You are currently actively pursuing people, and you will continue to pursue people. And for those that came here tonight that thought getting back to God meant turning around and going back the way they came back up the mountain that they fell from, 
I pray that they would be renewed and refreshed to realize that when they turn around in repentance, Jesus, you're standing right there. And you've cast their sin as far as the east is from the west. And to those that are hurt and broken, you say, I'll restore you for eternity. And that those that have been sitting on the sidelines would realize that we have an active role in the greatest love story in this thing called the gospel because it is finished. It was signed and sealed on the cross, but it's not over. It's active and it's ongoing. The Bible is alive, Jesus, because you are alive. Our faith is alive, Jesus, because you are alive. We have a mission as a church to glorify you now, to show other people Jesus in the flesh through ourselves, though broken, fractured mirrors as image bearers of you, to be sanctified by you, to glorify you so that others would come face to face with you now before they come face to face with you then. Holy Spirit, would you do a work on us tonight, myself included, put us back on mission, get us excited, get us comforted and refreshed in a love story that's been told since the beginning of time. I confess I'm not, I'm not much of a, a preacher on, on love and how much you care, and I've been challenged and re-encouraged in the fact that this is a love story first and foremost, God, and we thank you for that. You so loved the world, that's all of us, born enemies of you, for you so loved the world, that you gave your only son. And so I pray that we would simply receive you tonight, Jesus, for your glory. Amen.